Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Happy Halloween, everybody. It's 2.31 and 30. Mark here on WWL Radio. I've got to get right to my guest. Danielle Allen is a political scientist and director of the Allen Lab for Democracy Renovation at Harvard Kennedy School's Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. Danielle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for making time. I've been looking forward to this for a week. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. What's the best way to... to, um, to uh, what's the what's the proper honorific, ma'am? I'm sorry, I don't know this already. You're a doctor. You must. Uh, I am a doctor, but you are welcome to call me Danielle. Superb. Okay, let's get right into it, Danielle. We've only got about 20 minutes here, and we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, just tell us about the background of the Our Common Purpose report. Whose idea was this? How did it get started? Who financed it? Etc. Sure. So this is a report released in 2020, June of 2020, by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. The American Academy is older than the country, actually. It was set up um, in the period of the Revolutionary War, basically, uh, before the Constitution was written, um, by the same people who led the revolution. So, you know, uh, John Hancock and um, John Adams and George Washington was an early member. And the reason they set up this body was because they wanted to gather, gather together people who, as they called it at the time, were members of the, the learned professions. That was sort of the phrase they used. Um, so that the new country, this incredible experiment in self-government, would always have knowledge resources available to it to help it navigate challenges. So that's what the Academy has done through its whole existence. For example, in the middle of the 20th century, it did a lot of work around nuclear power and helped people really get their heads around how can we manage that so we don't destroy humanity and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in... 2017, the president of the academy um, started, you know, polling members to say, gosh, you know, do you think it's time for us to do some work on the health of our democracy? Um, And I was one of the folks who uh, President Fanton called uh, first off. And um, I said, yes, you know, I've been since 2013 thought that our democracy was in a kind of parlous state and needs some work. And so I was really honored to be able to co-chair that process. We put together a commission of about 40 people from around the country very diverse, ideologically diverse, demographically diverse, geographically, professional sectors, everything. We spent a lot of time running listening sessions all over the country to really ask people in a hugely diverse different communities, you know, what are you, what are you experiencing right now with our democracy? What's working for you? What's not working? What are your hopes? What are your fears? And that sort of set of conversations, grassroots conversations, yielded a report in June 2020 called Our Common Purpose with 31 recommendations for reinventing our democracy and securing health for our democracy going forward. I love it. I 
I, I, the, the thing, the, the recommendation, one of the most innovative things that really stood out to me is kind of flashy, um, is the proposal to uncap the house and add, yes. perhaps <laughs> radically add more members to the United States Congress lower chamber. Tell us about that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. Um, this was a really super interesting recommendation uh, to uncap the size of the house of representatives. So when the country was founded, when the Constitution was first written, the idea was that the House of Representatives would grow every 10 years with the census as the population grew. You would add seats to the House. And about 100 years ago, 1929, the House was arbitrarily capped at 435, not for any particular reason. And so for the last 100 years, you could kind of think of us as having deferred maintenance. So what this has meant is that um, the number of people that every representative represents just keeps going up and up and up. So in the very beginning of the country, every rep had 30,000 constituents. Now they're at 750,000 constituents. And a whole lot of our problems flow from that ratio. So our view is it's time to uncap the House, let it grow with the population the way it was supposed to grow. That will keep representatives closer to their constituents. They'll be able to serve them better. It will reduce uh, the power of money in politics. It won't take as much money to run for Congress, for instance. It will address the problem of sort of information vacuums. It'll be easier for people to have the knowledge they need about their representatives. So you won't have the sort of George Santos problem where somebody can get through with really like outrageously made up facts about their life. That won't happen in a smaller district. Um, so there are lots of good things that would come from it. And if we just went ahead and sort of you know, made up for the 100 years where we didn't do any growing, then we would bring the number of members of representatives to about 585. 585. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. It's not so bad. Exactly. And, you know, the other amazing thing about it is sometimes, you know, you say to people, gosh, we should really increase the size of the House of Representatives because it would actually do a lot to improve the quality of representation and the kind of dynamics we have in Congress. And people will say, oh, but where are they all going to sit? So we actually took the time also to do a study, to, to engage some architects and take a look at the building. And the amazing thing is, you know, that space could actually hold up to 1,700 representatives. So we have, we have lots of room for growth. That's incredible. Okay, great. And another thing that caught my attention in the report is the, the, the recommendation of uncapping the House can also kind of act as a counterbalance to the Electoral College, which abs- yeah. it seems to just do nothing but upset people nowadays. Tell us about yep. what's the, what is that counterbalance? How does that work? There you go. So I, you know, sometimes I think about our political institutions as kind of like this great old-fashioned clock, you know, with all the gears and the things ticking and so forth, and they all have to work in relationship to each other for the clock hands to go around properly. Um, And in some sense, that's what the situation is here, where the Electoral College is made up out of the numbers of people that you have in the House of Representatives and the number of people you have in the Senate. So when we capped the House, what that also meant was we capped the Electoral College, so it's not growing either. And what that really means is that um, states with the smaller populations, you know, get an increasingly sort of heavy weighting in their favor in the Electoral College. So the whole Electoral College gets thrown out of balance, in effect, because, again, the idea was it was supposed to grow. So California, New York, Texas and Florida, they should actually all have more seats in the Electoral College. And if they had more seats in the Electoral College, we wouldn't have the problem of getting that split between the popular vote 
and the Electoral College outcome. Mm-hmm. The, the likelihood of that happening would be significantly reduced. So people that, you know, and we've been hearing calls for reforming or getting rid of the Electoral College for some time now. And, and people that are in opposition to that will point to that and say, well, otherwise, it's just the most populated states pushing everybody else around. Yep. But what we're not talking about in that conversation is the Electoral College is only half of that equation. If you don't grow the House of Representatives in a proportional way with the population, then the whole the whole it's like a it's like scales. You know, it all tips right. too far in one direction. It's broke. It's not supposed to work. Bingo. Like that. That's not what the founders intended. Great. That's exactly right. Yes. And so the, the good news is like there is actually a solution to the problem we see with the Electoral College. So most people, you know, what people see as the problem are that the states with less population, you know, they have greater say, like significantly greater say in the Electoral College. And then related to that, the second problem people see is the fact that you can have the popular vote go one way and the Electoral College vote go another way. And both of those problems would be solved by growing the House of Representatives. Great. Moving on, you got so many other recommendations. I don't bet that we're probably going to get to half of them today. But um, <laughs> let's move to uh, district boundary gerrymandering reform. This is in there. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Great. Yes. So, I mean, the truth of the matter is, in a democracy, we often think about how the right to vote is fundamental. And yes, it is fundamental. Everybody has that right to vote. But the truth is, your right to vote doesn't get you anything if you don't have competitive elections to vote in, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, You've got to mm-hmm. actually have a competition where then your vote matters. And we are at a point in the country where because of gerrymandering, um, so this is sort of partisan control of the lines of districts, um, about 85% of our congressional districts are no longer competitive. Um, they're just decided in the party primary, and the general election doesn't matter at all. So that really is disfranchising a lot of voters. Turnout is a lot lower in party primaries as well. So you end up with a very small percentage of the electorate who that is deciding all the outcomes in our elections. So a piece of fixing that is to get rid of gerrymandering. In fact, they achieved this in Michigan. There was a great ballot initiative to do this, um, to have an independent redistricting commission, so nonpartisan, independent, that sort of figures out where the lines go so the districts are fair, and their slogan was always, you know, voters should pick politicians. It shouldn't be that politicians are picking their voters, right. which is what's currently happening with gerrymandering. Yeah, we've just had sort of a, a I don't want to say a wave election, but it felt like a wave election in Louisiana where we had, I don't know, maybe half of the state house. There was no election. Those people ran unopposed. Mm-hmm. And, wow. you know, it, I guess if, if your partisan lean is such that you ended up with the representative you want anyway, well, good. Congratulations. But you you did not participate in that process in any meaningful mm-hmm. way, really. So it's mm-hmm. almost like, you know, this is why. And we had terrible, terrible turnout across the state. Mm-hmm. Orleans Parish in particular was mm-hmm. the worst out of all of them. People just don't think that their vote matters. They don't feel like it's even worth their time, which just breaks my heart. But that's a right thing for another day. OK, uh, yeah, boy, it's heartbreaking. This has always been a, a, a real stick in my craw. Citizens United, which mm-hmm. when that when that decision came down, I think in 2011, that's kind of I really I was interested in politics before then, but I didn't really get active in politics until Citizens United. And that was kind of a a galvanizing moment for me. Your Our Common Purpose report suggests the solution to the corrupting money, uh, the corrupting influence of dark money 
is a constitutional mm-hmm. amendment. How, how will we do that? So the good news is that this is underway. People are working on it. And so the basic idea is, um, so, you know, we, as I said, we had 31 recommendations in our report. And we were always trying to figure out, you know, the, the most feasible pathway. So we wanted the most impactful recommendations for the sort of, you know, least amount of effort in some sense in terms of how hard it would be to get it through. So as a result of that, we were really, really careful about the question of when should you try for a constitutional amendment. And out of all, all, out of, all of our recommendations, we recommended only one constitutional amendment, and that is an amendment to um, recognize that corporations do not have the same speech rights as individuals and cannot uh, contribute in politics in the way that individuals do. Mm-hmm. So as I said, the good news is there's an organization called American Promise, which is in fact moving this amendment forward. And the way they are doing this is by working through all members of Congress, both parties, and getting um, people to sign on for support. And they have actually really built um, an amazing network um, of support. They have a candidate pledge program, for example. And everybody, you know, in every community could take this pledge to their candidate and get their candidates to sign on. And if we can collectively, you know, really get candidates and office holders across the board to sign on, we can get this amendment through. So it's actually surprising um, how much support they have already um, hmm. won um, with members of Congress. So it's a doable thing, and the, the wheels are in motion. Term limits for Supreme Court justices. Yes, exactly. Another one. Uh, so this is interesting because so the idea here is that uh, Supreme Court justices should all have 18-year terms. And they'll, they should be staggered so that every presidential term, every four years, the president is making two appointments. So you have sort of smooth and steady rotation. You always know every president's going to get two appointments. Uh, you don't have folks sort of serving on the court for 40 or you know, 50 years yeah. and really you know, um, not being out of sort of step with the people, basically. There's a, a way of reconnecting the court uh, to the population and to how we are all changing over time. And it's exciting on this one, actually, because public opinion is really strongly in favor of term limits for Supreme Court justices. I think it's something that wasn't even on people's radar screen, you know, five or six years ago. Yeah. And now, you know, it pulls a sort of supermajority level um, of people supporting the idea. That's incredible. And I, I love to, you know, I think people had probably gamed it out that like 18 years is too long to be on the bench. And so they're like, you know, you're, you're out of step with the people or maybe you're, you, you've, you've got age-related issues and we're not sure if we can trust your judgment anymore. But I think it's equally important to point to the fact that the way that you, you stagger that out guarantees that every president gets to appoint two Supreme Court justices. And you don't, exactly. Nobody has to worry about that anymore and you don't have any more, we're going to steal this Supreme Court appointment from you and we're going to do it, you know, seven days before the election or something like that. Exactly. Just, I can't imagine That's anyone right. would object to that. OK, great. Um, the, there's an entire section of your report, Section 2, which is just titled simply Empowering Voters. Take us through some of the proposals in there. Mm, thank you. Yeah. No. So Empowering Voters, I mean, that again gets back to that basic um, fundamental right to vote that we all have. And so. We are looking at the question of how to make uh, voting sort of easier for people, increase the access and so forth, um, but also just to make it really the fundamental piece and so in such a way that the power of voting cannot be um, undermined. And, um, I mean, it's interesting that um, 
you know, some of the things are just straightforward. For example, we think Veterans Day should be a holiday um, as a way of making time um, and space for everybody to um, to have that chance to participate. We also advocate for same-day voter registration so that, you know, even if it's the very day of the election, people can, in fact, register still. We've got this already in 22 states. It's easy to do in ways that are about, you know, good at controlling voter records and dealing with issues of identification and things like that. So it really is a viable process. Um, We also think it's really important to pre-register 16- and 17-year-olds so that they're getting that first connection to voting while they're still at home. There's a lot of evidence to support that when people do get that first connection while they're still at home, um, they are much more likely to, to stick with the process. Um, You know, we also have some slightly quirky ideas, like, for example, when you go to serve on a jury, you get paid and you also have jury orientation, um, you know, when you first go. And and we think that it's a reasonable thing to offer um, voter orientation for first time voters, um, which is not orienting them to how to vote, but just orienting to the, the process. How do you participate? And we think in the same way that we pay jurors to come to that jury service day, you could pay first-time voters to come to a voter orientation um, event or ritual. And so that's a way, again, of kind of reinforcing the notion that everybody's participating um, all the way through. Great. That, I feel like that kind of segues nextly a uh, question I want to ask a little bit later. Section 4, expand mm. civic bridging capacity. What is civic bridging, and how do you expand the capacity of that? Nice. That's a great question. So civic bridging is the basic experience of Americans all over the country connecting with people from different parts of society from themselves. So it might be from a different religious background or a different neighborhood or a different racial group or different cultural affinities and things like that. And there's just a lot of evidence. And I mean, this evidence honestly has accumulated and been analyzed from the early 19th century to the present, um, there's just a lot of evidence that the health of democracy depends on those bridging connections and those bridging relationships. So over the last sort of 30-ish years or so, we've also seen a kind of reduction in how frequently people are having those bridging experiences. We have seen our neighborhoods segregate by socioeconomic status. We have also seen our neighborhoods segregate by ideology, so red versus blue and the like. So in that context, it's really important to have sort of a revival of bridging. And you can even think of like revivals as a kind of community event that you know brings a lot of different people together in shared space and so forth. So the question is, you know, what are the, um, the opportunities to have those bridging experiences? Civic infrastructure is really important here, meaning parks, and libraries. Yeah you know, all that to, to start making spaces for people to come together. Yeah, I love that. P- people have heard me on on this program say we need more third spaces everywhere. Mm-hmm. Many, many more of them. It, it, I mean, there's so many problems that either get better or just go away outright. If we have a place to go that's not our house and it's not our job yep. and and just live with each other, just talk to each other and enjoy each other's company and, and break bread and pray and on and on. I mean, there's so much that we can do. I feel like we're leaving a lot on the table there. Okay, just in the closing minutes here, Danielle, um, what role do you see for our elected leaders and other mm. influences in politics in, in shaping a culture of civic discourse? In mm-hmm. how, how can they contribute positively? It seems like um, things are things are so rancorous and things are so ugly 
nobody is ever going to reach compromise. Nobody's ever going to have anything nice to say about each other. You see that between the parties. You see that among the parties. How can our elected leaders and influencers turn that around? Oh, that's a fantastic question. And I mean, I think there are, are two parts of the answer. And one part's cultural, and I think then the other part is institutional. So on the cultural front, it's important that we all recognize that leadership does matter. Um, our leaders do set norms, and those norms do sort of anchor and drive our culture. So we the people, we the voters, we have to ask for leaders who are willing to commit to embodying basic democratic norms of listening you know, to your opponent, proving that you can actually hear them, listening to people who are different from yourself, engaging in reasoned debate. Let's get rid of the bullying. Let's get rid of the toxicity and so forth. Um, you know, there again, there's a, a great initiative, um, in this case, uh, sponsored in a, a cross-partisan way by the Carter Presidential Center and the Ford Presidential Center, so Democrat and Republican. They set up a project called uh, the Candidates Principles Project. And so this is another pledge project where candidates are asked to pledge to commit themselves to some of those basic democratic norms of how you treat others, how you practice debate and things like that. And so same thing, you know, we voters we should be asking all our candidates to take that pledge and getting those leadership norms back. The second thing we need to do is a lot of those elected officials, um, you know, there's a sense in which they're trapped and they're trapped in their fear of being primaried, right? Yes. By really intense uh, minorities within their party. So I say we also have to free the politicians, okay? And the way we free them, actually, I mean, Louisiana is kind of a model here you guys have gotten rid of party primaries. Um, we need to take that actually to the rest of the country. You, California, Washington, Alaska, and Nevada have all gotten rid of party primaries. Mm -hmm. And as a result, candidates can run um, you know, from different parties all on the same ballot. It does actually give them more leeway than when they're serving in office than for candidates who come from states with party primaries. Um, so I think that's a really important part, too, of making sure that our politicians are able to be their best selves. I love it. Um, Danielle, we have to stop there. There's so much more of this report that I would love to pick over with, uh, with you rather. And I, I would like to just continue this conversation with our audience. But today's not our day, ma'am. So I'm going to keep you in the Rolodex <laughs> and uh, we'll try to get Alrighty. in touch another time. This was so fun okay, and educational you. and interesting. And I really thank you very much for your time, your work and your way. Take care. Thank you, Ian. Take good care. Adios, Bye -bye. amiga. All right, it's 2.53 here. We'll step away and come back with some of your text messages on that old Oakland Heart Jewelers talking text line. And then you know what's coming up at 3 o'clock. I'm going to read some of your ghost stories. We're going to turn down the lights. Uh, I wanted to light candles, but they tell me I can't burn candles in here, so I have my lava lamp instead, which is close, but not the same. Anyway, Ian Hokin for Scoot. We'll be right back after this. Stick around. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 